Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, we were um, planning to kind of embark on a study of uh, chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah this morning, but just knowing this week uh, all that has transpired, um, the theme of those chapters is just not appropriate for us to sort of take up in our study of God's Word this morning. So we're going to wait one more week on that. And what I want you to do instead is turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 to 27. This, uh, for those of you who've been a part of our church for some time, understand this is our, uh, this chapter uh, 9 verse 24 contains really the, the focal point of our philosophy of ministry. We are uh, a church who is making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And we're doing that um, by uh, sowing gospel seed as we make disciples and in building up the body in love and in uh, uh, exalting Christ uh, through the worship that takes place in his church through his word. Um, and uh, I want you to notice the last part of verse 24. Paul says, run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. So Paul's exhortation in this chapter, and particularly in verses 24 to 27, are a description of mature Christian discipleship, and he's given it to us for our benefit, for our instruction He says, run to win the race of the Christian life. This is both uh, his example, this is how he lived his life, this is how he conducted himself, but it's also, as we see in the text, his exhortation to us and to the church. He tells us what is required to get the job done uh, in verses 25 to 27. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, therefore run in such a way as not without aim. He says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So he tells us what's required to get the job done, self-discipline, spirit-fueled self-discipline, knowing the goal and esteeming the prize. All of that is essential to running to win. Each and every one of us who were in Christ this morning took a solemn oath when we came to the foot of the cross and repented of our sins and placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We took an oath by his grace to signify that we were all in. We were all in for Christ. Ready to run the race of our Christian lives. Seriously to run the race of our Christian lives. Passionately in pursuit of this imperishable crown of eternal life. We, we took an oath to exercise discipline over every era of our lives in pursuit of godliness because we have been justified by faith. Uh, we took a solemn oath knowing the goal that we were called to lay hold of, that prize that he mentions. We took a solemn oath understanding the exceeding cost and the immeasurable value of that prize that he has given to those who run the race with endurance and purchase for us with his blood. So we're reminded in this text this morning, and this is why I want us to think about this. You and I need to run the race of the Christian life to win, to win. We cannot be content to just be on the field. We cannot be content to just be going. We cannot be content to stumble across the finish line. Paul says, run in such a way, in such a manner that you may win. 
that raises some important questions, I think, that are pertinent to why I want to preach through this this morning and, and, and remind us of these things again this morning. And that is, we've been confronted once again with the harsh reality that our earthly lives are a mere breath. They are here today, as Ecclesiastes writes, and gone the next. All is vanity. All is breath. And um, so the finish line for many of us, is not that far ahead. That, that's the point. Uh, and, and we can never quite be sure if the next quarter mile is, in fact, the last quarter mile of our Christian race. Uh, Psalm 90 and verse 10, Moses writes, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years, and yet their pride, their glory, the thing that makes them whatever, is their labor, is, is their labor and sorrow. But he says, soon it is gone, and we, we fly away. So when Paul exhorts us, as he does here in this text, to run to win, the statement raises some important questions that we need to answer. Questions like, what does winning look like? And uh, what's waiting for us at the finish line? Question, you know, Paul uses this imagery of a runner here uh, in this race to describe our Christian lives on earth for believers. We'll have to run this course, but what's, what's waiting for us at the end of that? And beyond the question of what's waiting for us, Paul's exhortation raises another question, which is why should we value that? Why, why is that valuable? What makes winning worthwhile? What makes winning worth sacrificing for? These are important questions that we need to answer, and they're important to answer because they seem to be vitally connected to how we live our Christian lives today and tomorrow and next week. The Lord tarries. And it's my contention, as we look at this text, because it's God's intention in the text, that a true and deepening understanding of our future reward is the rich soil in which the Christian life grows up into maturity. Our living hope, as the rich soil of the soul, anchors and nourishes the heart such that we can bring forth lasting fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, as the gospel says. And so as Paul sketches out for us this view of freedom, our Christian liberty, in chapter 9, what lies behind, or maybe what lies ahead, I may use a pun, at the end of all these attitudes and actions that he lays out here, is this future reward. He, he is running, Paul is running with maximum effort, he says, so that he may win the prize. He's exercising self-control, disciplining his body, making it his slave, so that he may receive an imperishable wreath. He restrains his rights and accommodates himself to others for the greater progress of the gospel, so that he might become a fellow partaker and sharing and sharer of its blessings. Winning the race, receiving that wreath, that imperishable wreath, becoming a share in the gospel blessings, that is all the language of rewards. That's all the language of rewards. I don't think it's going beyond the text to say that Paul's understanding of his rights as a son and daughter of the king of kings, his, his voluntary restraint of those rights, and his running the race of his Christian life are all specifically calibrated by a firm grasp of what was at the end. 
Running to win necessitates knowing the goal. It necessitates esteeming the prize. And I am convinced that many of us don't press on to maturity. Many bring forth very little or no fruit in, the, in their spiritual lives because, one, they don't understand what's at the end of the Christian race, or they don't value, rightly value those things as they ought, or both. And without a clear sight of and delight in the triune God by faith, we inevitably will lock our eyes on things below. We will look at the things of this world and grab hold of them instead. And we will crop God out of the picture. And, and we end up focusing on all of God's gifts rather than the giver of those gifts, which is God himself. In a word, we become idolaters. Heaven is eclipsed, and we stumble around in a kind of weird twilight that's not quite darkness and not quite the brightness of the full day. And we wither and we wilt on the vine. But Paul, in this text, Paul calls us to follow him into the light, to, keeping, to keep our minds, our wills, our affections firmly fixed on our future hope. So future blessing, future blessing prompts present behavior. Living hope motivates living in a Christian way now. And so we must have our mind's eye riveted on that reward, that living hope that we so often lose sight of, if we're ever going to make real progress and bring forth lasting fruit in our Christian lives. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want to just zero in on what Paul says at the end of verse 24, run in such a way that you may win. And I want to ask and answer three questions. First, what is our reward? What lies at the end of our race in the Christian life? Secondly, why is it valuable? And lastly, I want to make a final appeal to all of us, no matter whether we're in Christ or out of Christ. So that's not really a question, but... My prayer for us this morning is that, as the, that the wind of God's spirit, to use an analogy, would, would take the fuel of his word and it would reignite or perhaps ignite for the first time fresh fire of our living hope. That's my goal. And so I want to ask and answer the first question, which is, what is our reward? What is the believer's reward? The first question we need to ask and answer is, what is it? What is our hope? What does winning look like when the believer gets to the end of their life here on earth, when they get to the finish line? To begin to answer that question, we need to answer and ask and answer a, a more foundational question, which is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You might say, well, the gospel is the good news that um, though we are all sinners and, and therefore condemned to eternal punishment, that Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he, he died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners, and he rose victorious from the grave on the third day to pay man's sin debt. And all who turn to him in trust, in faith, are justified, they are declared righteous, that's what justified means, they are... Um, and that's by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works, and they are forgiven of their sins and receive this promise of life eternal. Like, that's the gospel. If your answer included 
God's holiness, our sin, Christ's person and work, and a call to faith in that work, then, then you understand the gospel, at least intellectually. But let me ask another question. What makes the gospel, which means good news, what makes it good? What makes it good? You might respond by pointing out that, well, I mean, you won't spend, if you're in Christ, you won't spend eternity suffering a just punishment in hell when you die. You can be sure, you can be confident that when, you, when your life, earthly life ends, you will step into the presence of the Lord in heaven. The gospel might be good news to you because death's sting and the fear of death itself have been removed. It may be good news to you because one day you'll be reunited with other believers who have already gone before you, family, loved ones, friends, people in the church that you've known and loved. That's all true. That's all right. If you're more theologically minded, you might answer that question, what makes the gospel good, by saying, well, um, pointing out that the good news uh, means that even though we're guilty before God, we can be clothed with his perfect righteousness as a garment by his grace and by faith alone. So that we have been justified. That's what makes it good news. You might say that through faith in the gospel, we're forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, even sins we haven't even committed yet, and we have real spiritual power to obey God's will. In other words, it's good news because we're being sanctified. You might say that that's why the gospel's good news. You might even say that the gospel is good news because one day when Christ comes back, our soul will be united to a glorified and resurrected body, just like the resurrected Lord. And therefore, we will live, as we read earlier, in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, it's good news because we will be glorified. Those, again, if your answer to the question, what makes the gospel good, points to any of those things, our rescue from God's wrath, the hope of heaven, our justification, sanctification, glorification, you would be 100% correct. You'd be speaking truthfully, but you would be missing the final aim or purpose of the gospel. The final aim and the highest good of the gospel is not that we are justified or that we are sanctified or that we are spared eternal judgment. It's not that we will be reunited with the saints who have gone before us or that we won't have to contend anymore with sin and sickness and sadness, which we won't. What makes the gospel truly good is that the gospel brings us to God. What makes the gospel truly good is that the gospel brings us to God himself. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For God also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Right? That's that great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. But here's the reason. So that he might bring us to God. Or just a, a few uh, verses earlier in chapter 2 of 1 Peter 2, he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In other words, we were lost in, in wandering, and yet God brought us to himself. Or John 17 and verse 24, Jesus praying to uh, his heavenly Father says, I desire, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So, forgiveness, the turning away of wrath, 
resurrection, the removal of sin's curse, those are all the gifts of the gospel. Those are all the benefits of the gospel. They are good and they are glorious and they are precious, but they are not its final aim or purpose. Why are we forgiven? Why is wrath turned away? Why are we fit with glorified bodies? Why is the curse reversed? The answer is those things are necessary for us as fallen and finite creatures to enter into and enjoy the fellowship of God himself in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what makes the gospel good. God himself is what makes the gospel good news. Everything else, while it does glorify him, is meant to move us to that final aim and purpose. So let me ask a a follow-up question. What makes heaven, heaven? Because God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere in the totality of his being at all times. He's everywhere. He is, so what makes heaven, heaven? Remember, heaven's a created realm. God created the heavens and the earth. Just like the physical universe, but, but heaven is a created realm that's unique in that it is permeated with and defined by God's very presence and rule. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven is God's personal presence, as one theologian said, turned unto the creaturely realm in grace and mercy. Put simply, heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Let me give you an illustration that might be helpful to think about this. Air Force One, right, the plane that the president travels around on, that isn't just one particular Boeing 747. What makes Air Force One Air Force One is that it is the plane that is carrying the current president of the United States. If, if the president of the United States steps on a commercial airplane to take a flight across country, while he is president, that plane becomes Air Force One. His presence on it makes it so. And in the same is true of God himself. What makes heaven heaven is God's presence with and to the creaturely realm in a lordly manner, in a, in a sovereign manner. The point we're making is this. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. The gospel is the way to get people to God. Forgiveness, justification, propitiation, the turning aside of wrath, that's all that word means, redemption, sanctification, glorification, all of them are good news because they glorify God and they bring us to God. The gospel is the good news that God has overcome every obstacle to and made every provision for our everlasting enjoyment of him forever and ever. Christ didn't die on the cross to forgive us so we could go on treasuring a million other things above God. And I fear that so often, and myself, is in, I'm included in this, as preachers and teachers of the gospel, we can make, and say many, make many claims and say many true and exalted things about the gospel and plead with people to, to repent and to, to look to Christ. And we can do all that and not lead our people to the goal, which is God himself. Listen to the psalmist. Listen to what David says in Psalm 27 and verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Why? Because that's where God's presence is. Verse 8, when you said, seek my face, this is God speaking, David said, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. So David's prayer shows that he longed for one thing above all others for, for his future, to be with and see God's glory in all its intimacy and all of its majesty and glory and, and uh, power. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, O oh God, he says, You are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So the end of the psalmist's faith is the beholding of God. Isaiah 40 Verse 9, as Isaiah ministers words of comfort, he says, Get yourselves up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. So here we have the gospel. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So we see again, the end of the good news is the presence of God with his people. And of course, the, the fullness of this sight of the triune God culminates in the face of Jesus Christ, who God's people have confessed is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And when we come to the Gospel of John in, in the beginning of chapter 1, in verse 14, John writes, the word of the Father became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So through the eyes of faith, God's people saw then and continue to see today the glory of God, and we do that visibly in the face of Jesus Christ, who is God himself. First uh, Corinthians 13 and verse 12, Paul says, Now, in this life, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, he says what? We see face to face. The end or goal of the gospel is to bring us to God. Now, this is what the church has historically referred to as the blessed or happy vision of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the beatific vision of God. It's a truth that's kind of been lost in the shuffle over all of our temporal concerns, but it's one that should be uppermost as we run the race of our Christian life because it's the final end for which God has created and saved us, to know him, to behold him. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, what? For they shall see God. Or uh, he prayed to the Father, as we read earlier, I desire that they also whom you've given to me be with me where I am so that I may, uh, they may see my glory, this is Jesus speaking, which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And as we read earlier, at the end of all things, after all the tribulation, after all the millennial reign of Christ, what is foremost in the eternal state in chapter 21 and verse 3 John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In other words, the end of all things is God in the face of Jesus Christ with his people. 
There's a day coming when the veil will be pulled back and God will reveal himself in ever-increasing glory to us, to our glorified body and soul, like a king on coronation day, showing himself in all of his royalty and magnificence. I think, isn't that coming sometime soon in England? Isn't, isn't King Charles going to wear all the fancy robes and the, the whole procession? What is that? That's meant to display that he's the, he's the sovereign, he's the king. He doesn't walk around, hopefully he doesn't walk around in that all the time. This is the heaven of heavens. Yes, we'll see angels, and that'll be wonderful. Yes, we will see uh, our, our fellow believers in Christ, and that'll bring joy to our hearts. Yes, we will have glorified bodies, amen, right? Freed from sin's curse, but far excelling all of that, far greater than all of that, is we will see God. This is our reward. This is what winning looks like for those who run the race of their Christian lives with endurance. This is why Paul calls it the crown that is life. This is why Paul calls it in our text the imperishable wreath, the crown of righteousness as it's called elsewhere in the New Testament, the unfading crown of glory. It is the sight of and delight in God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That is our reward. That is our reward. The second question we need to ask and answer then, why is this vision of God so valuable? Why is this vision of God so exceedingly valuable? And I want us to turn over in our mind in these last few minutes several excellencies of this vision of God that the scriptures speak of, that Paul talks about here. First, our sight of God will be among other things, a clear sight, a clear sight. As we said earlier, on earth, we see through the eyes of faith. We see dimly. But through Christ, we'll see God in an unhindered manner, face to face. It's different when you're face to face with somebody, right? That's what we hated about Zoom during the pandemic. Right? We long to be face-to-face. God will remove the veil displaying his glory insofar as our finite souls are capable of, cont- of absorbing that and understanding it. 1 John 3, 2 says, when God appears, we will see him just as he is. That's a shocking statement. Or as we said earlier in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he says, we will know even as we are known by God himself. In other words, our knowledge of God will look like his knowledge of us. And what is his knowledge of us? Well, we are known intimately by God. He knows our every thought. Right? He knows as clearly as day. And as much as our finite can comprehend the infinite, so our sight of God will be clear, straightforward. Nothing standing in between. So our sight of God will be a clear sight. Secondly, our sight of God will be a transforming sight. This vision of God that Paul talks about, this winning looks like a transforming sight. When when the time comes, when God calls us home or he returns, we will be like him, glorified. We are not, we don't become God. That's not what we're saying. That's not what John's saying. But we will be like him in holiness which is essential because if we're not like him, we would be consumed. What happens when you turn on the light in a pitch dark room? Everything in that room is transformed in an instant. 
It's just like, right? It, it, things that were faded and menacing in the darkness are suddenly sharp and clear and innocent in the light. And that's how it will be for God's people who see God. Thomas Watson, famous Puritan, says the saints, by beholding the brightness of God's glory, shall have a tincture of that glory upon them. Not that they shall partake of God's very essence, for as iron in the fire becomes fire, yet remains iron still, so the saints, by beholding the luster of God's majesty, shall be glorious creatures, but creatures still. It's, it's like why people want to be around famous people. They hope a little bit of the glory rubs off on them, right? Oh yeah, that's my friend. I'm going to follow him around. But think about that with God. As we behold him, as we stand before him, we will, we will, that glory will, will kind of rub off on us. Just as you put a, an iron in the fire and it, what does it do? That iron just becomes red hot and absorbs all that heat and reflects that out. But yet it's still separate from the fire. That's his point. So it is with God. When we see God, it will be a transforming sight for us. Thirdly, our sight of God will be a, a joyful sight. It will be a joyful sight. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, You, speaking to God, will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So think about how joyful you are after, and we just came through this kind of gray, dark winter. And then what happens? February rolls around and it becomes 80 degrees. <laughs> No, as you get to the spring, what? Clear blue skies start to come out. Things come back to life. Your yard comes and, and it starts to green up and everything is, is kind of back the way it ought to be. You don't have to wear a coat every time you leave the house. So it will be for the son of righteousness when he reveals himself in all his glory and, and blasts away the sin of darkness, the darkness of sin, excuse me, and, and sin's night. I love... I think about Jesus' words to the disciples. When he was in the upper room, in John 16, he says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will, he says, see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, that wasn't just true. He wasn't just speaking about what would happen after his resurrection, which was obviously joyful. Uh, he's, not even just ta he's not only talking about the joy that we have by faith, He's talking, and that includes the joy that no one can take away because we experience it in an ever-increasing and perfect way for all eternity. That's the joy that can't be taken away. So, so our sight of God will be a joyful sight. Fourthly, our sight of God will be a satisfying sight. It'll be a satisfying sight. We can throw everything in this world into our hearts 20 times over, and it's not enough to fill up our hearts. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that, isn't that the message of Ecclesiastes? Solomon says, I tried it all, and it's all vanity. It's all breath. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 8, he says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing in terms of just things on this earth. But the sight of God? Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. 
God and nothing but God can truly satisfy the soul. Our heads will be so filled up with the knowledge of God in eternity, and our hearts will be so overflowing with joy in his presence, there'll never be a hint of lack. That's incredible to think about. Fifthly, our sight of God will be a perpetual and unweariable sight. It will be a perpetual, unweariable sight. You think about the most amazing like things that you can behold, that you can take in, the most sublime experiences that you and I enjoy on this earth. It doesn't take long before you become desensitized, right? Whoa, that's incredible. That's the Grand Canyon. But if you sat there and stared at it day after day after day, eventually it would just be a big hole in the ground. I used to live in the Gulf Coast of Florida. It's a beautiful part of the country. Naples, highly recommend you go there. I tell you what, I lived there for 25, almost 25 years. I didn't care anymore after a while. Never went to the beach. Ne I mean, just it was like, okay, the beach is a mile down the road. Perfect sunsets almost every night. And uh, I, I, can't, I can't even tell you last time I took one of those in while I lived there. We just become desensitized to that, but not so with God. We will never become weary of him. We will never, we will never grow tired of taking him in. He is infinite and we are finite. The well of his perfections communicated to us as creatures, that well is inexhaustible. Jonathan Edwards points this out in his resource, his book, The End for Which God Created the World. And he says, just as an eternity of divine wrath can never fully satisfy divine justice, so, in like manner, in glorifying his saints in heaven with an eternal happiness, God aims to satisfy his infinite grace by the bestowment of a good infinitely valuable. So all he's saying there is just like God will take an eternity and will never fully satisfy his wrath against the sinner, God will spend an eternity trying to fully satisfy the believer with his glorious presence. And there will never come a moment, he says, when it can be said that now this infinitely valuable good has been bestowed. In other words, it just keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. It will take an eternity of increasing joy to experience all the fullness of God, and yet we will still never get there. How unsearchable his judgments. How inexhaustible his grace. Our eyes on earth grow dim. Our minds give way to frailty as we get older. We aren't able to enjoy things we once did because the outer man is decaying, but in God's presence, that never happens. Our capacities will continue to be enlarged to take in, delight in, and display and reflect back more and more of God's glory forever and ever and ever. Lastly, our sight of God will be an immediate sight. An immediate sight. When we draw the final breath that God gives us in this life, the saints will immediately pass from death to glory, like walking through a door. 
We certainly don't go into some purgatory of divine suffering and wrath like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. 1 Thessalonians 5, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. We don't go into some kind of soul sleep as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. 2 Corinthians 5a teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we take great comfort and great hope in the words of Christ to the thief on the cross when he looked to him and said, truly, today you shall be with me in paradise. That thief, because of his simple childlike faith in Christ, was immediately transported from the cross to the glorious presence of the Lord in heaven, and so it shall be with us for the believer. So why is our sight of God such a valuable and glorious reward? Well, it gives way to a clear sight. It is a transforming sight. It is a joyful sight. It is a satisfying sight. It is a perpetual, unweariable sight. And it is an immediate sight. So, having asked and answered those questions, let me leave you with a final appeal. First, to those without Christ. If you're at you this morning, you need to run into the rock that is Jesus Christ. No man knows the day or the hour, as we've been reminded of this week. Just as Moses could only see God's glory when hidden in the rock, so you and I can only see and savor God forever and ever if we are hidden in the rock of Christ's righteousness, not by our own effort, but by faith. We look to him in faith. Only those who are pure in heart shall see God. And guess what? None of us are pure in heart. None of us can stand before his glorious majesty as we read in our scripture reading from the Old Testament this morning. None of us is holy. And if the cloud of your sin is not removed by the atoning work of Christ applied to your heart by faith, then you will never see the son of righteousness. Not the way we just described Augustine, famous 4th century, 3rd, 4th century um, theologian, said, uh, he said, there are many who are content to go to heaven, but they are loath to take the way that leads there. They want the glorious vision, but they turn their backs on the gracious way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ. So, if that's you this morning, you need to run into the rock that is Christ. But for many of us, you are in Christ this morning. So let me leave you with an appeal as well. First, you and I should be really amazed at this privilege. It is something we don't stop and think about enough. That one day we will see God in unveiled glory. You and I were, before Christ broke through the darkness, destined for eternal wrath. We were worms formed out of the dust, as this hymn writer says, and yet by God's unmerited favor, we have been admitted to the blessed sight of God forever and ever. We've been given that privilege. Moses prayed in Exodus 33 to the Lord. He says, show me your glory. That's what he prayed to God. Little did he or anyone else at that time know exactly how God was going to answer that prayer for his people. He had no idea. 
He has made us sharers of the heavenly joy and delight that exists within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and has existed between them for all eternity. He's made us sharers of that. And so we should be amazed at that privilege. And secondly, though we see in a mirror dimly, let me appeal to you to keep your eye of faith firmly set on our living hope. Let's keep our eye firmly set on our living hope. The writer of Hebrews points out that it was by faith that Moses saw him who is invisible. Psalm 25 verse 15 encourages us to fix our eyes continually toward the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And while the world wants to leverage God to get more of the world, as Christians, we are called to leverage the world to get more of God. The eyes of faith bring more joy to the believer who's heavenly minded than all the riches of the kingdoms of this world could ever offer. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. This is what it means to walk by faith. Maybe one final appeal. Run to win. Enduring every sacrifice and affliction, knowing that they will soon give way to this imperishable prize, this imperishable wreath. Why could Paul endure hardship? Why could Paul suffer loss? Why could Paul endure affliction, what he calls momentary light affliction, which is really the understatement of the century? Why could he do that? Because he knew it was going to give way to an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. That's why. And how would that happen? He continues in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, he says, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen, one half hour in God's glorious presence will make you forget every pain and every disappointment and every loss this world has heaped upon us. So let this blessed vision of God carry us forward, full sail, through the waters of sacrifice, through the waters of affliction, through the waters of loss, sadness, grief. Because as we read in Revelation, he will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning, no longer any sickness, nor crying, nor pain. I mean, that's... That's how we keep our eyes fixed on the prize. And we rejoice in the Lord that our sister Barbara is enjoying that sight even now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in this world to figure it all out, but you have given us your word and you've given us your spirit and you've guided us into all the truth. If we will simply hear and see with the eyes of faith, Lord, we pray that you would draw hearts to yourself this morning those who need Christ, that they might bow the knee, that they might be partakers of this glorious sight of God that is to come. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ this morning and 
And many of us carry weight of grief and sadness and shock and help us to remember that 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 is what awaits us. And uh, we can press on toward the goal, as Paul says, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May it be so for us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.